Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs at Shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, jump on your knife cycle and let's go for a ride. This is Elizabethtown. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Blast Zone. Welcome to The Blast Zone. We are not a podcast about bad movies. We are a podcast about movies that did badly. That's right. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Duke, so I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like Elizabethtown, which we'll be talking about today. One of our only forays into the world of romantic comedy, Ian. Taking them down to Elizabethtown. Won't you take me to... But before we get into that, how are you doing this weekend? You know, at the start of a dark comedy, you meet the sad sack character and he's run down oh and his life is dreary and one day things go really bad. Well, I think I'm in like that dreary part and I'm getting suspicious that one of these days I'm going to have an inciting incident and shit's going to really get weird. So you're concerned things aren't bad enough. I'm concerned that I'm inviting a movie to break out in my life and it's going to be harrowing and maybe there'll be a hero's journey and I'll be a better person by the end, but it could be a cynical dark comedy. I don't know who's directing this thing. If you find a sack of money on the street that seems untraceable, just leave it there. All right. Don't get involved. We don't need you getting caught up in any kind of caper or hijinks. That sounds exactly like advice the hero's friends would give him and then he would foolishly ignore. Yeah, he would definitely take the bag of money. Well, hopefully someone like Jake Johnson will play you in the eventual retelling of it. He seems like a rapscallion who's always up to trouble. That's almost too much to hope for. So I guess things aren't going great, but you're worried they're going to get worse soon. I'm just clocking in like the guy in Severance. I got to watch Severance. I still haven't checked it out. There's so much good TV on right now. There's a lot. It's an embarrassment of riches. Better Call Saul is back. Severance is wrapping up. Tokyo Vice is good. Pachinko is supposed to be really good. I've been meaning to check out Pachinko, but what about Outer Range? Outer Range? Yeah. So good. Or as I like to call it, Yellowstone, if things actually happened on it. Stuff really um, happens. Be careful, folks, if you check that one out. It's a good show. It's like Cormac McCarthy by way of H.G. Wells. It's very, oh, uh, it's very cool. Reference. Now that we're spitballing about what we've been watching, we might as well jump into it, right? That seems like a natural time to... Tell me what you've watched recently that you thought would be worthwhile to share with the listeners. We watch so much TV, but then I go, hey, you know what? This is a movie podcast. Let me try to catch a flick once in a while. Absolutely. I watched Vast of Night on Amazon, which they released in 2020. It did the film festival circuit back in 2019. And when I watched it, I didn't know how small the movie this was. It was a $700,000 indie film, which is a lot of money for me, but a tiny budget for a movie that you can just flip on next to your Marvel mega productions on your streaming service. It was the debut by by this writer-director named Andrew Patterson. Really interesting little film. It looks cool. It's stylish. It's this 50s New Mexico UFO type story. It's a very verbal movie, long strings of snappy dialogue, a number of these extended monologues, but he recognizes that it's very talky in parts and he also injects it with some interesting cinematic flourishes. But in between, it feels like a radio play almost. It's so talky and narrowly focused in on these handful of people. But the main characters are great. The actors turn in really good performances. It's a fun, quirky sci-fi story. And uh, if you set your sights for something small, you can really enjoy this movie. I, I recommend it. Yeah, I remember, I think Sean Fantasy talking about it on one of his year-end 2020 lists as a, as a movie he recommended. And I'm always meant to check it out. I never got around to it. And I was just looking up to see what else Andrew Patterson's got on the way. This man has two credits to his name. He has The Vast of Night, which he was the writer-director, like uh-huh. you said, the driving creative force behind it. And then he has a podcast about the great cinematographer Roger Deakins that he was a guest on called Team Deakins. Yeah. And then 
And that's it. Has Nothing it on the horizon stuff? as far as I can tell. There's <laughs> another place I think it says he had a second feature film in development, but I didn't really see much about it. His day job was making commercials and promo videos for the Oklahoma City Thunder before he cool. decided to make his own feature film. So interesting dude. Yeah, it was well received. It sounds like the type of thing I would enjoy, and I will definitely check it out based on your recommendation. But my recommendation could not be more different than Vast of Night, which you described as quiet, minimalist, long stretches of just dialogue. I got out to the theater, and by the time this episode is released, this will be old news, but I went opening weekend, well, opening wide release weekend, to see everything everywhere all at once. By that, I don't mean I saw all the movies (laughs) as much as I would like to. That is a wide release when you see everything everywhere. (laughs) It was like a last minute decision. I was like, I'm either going to see Ambulance or I'm going to see Everything Everywhere Mm. All at Once. Both movies that I really did want to see in theaters. And I'm bummed I couldn't help Ambulance boost its opening weekend. But this movie, man, I know a lot's been said about it. And I don't want to give away too much because I'm sure some of our listeners have heard very little about it. I know you know very little about it, except that it's good and you want to see it. Yeah, (laughs) it's one of those where people get really excited and I don't know why, but I don't want to know until I can actually start the movie. Even if you know the baseline, what the movie is ostensibly about, it still manages to surprise you a lot. I was a big Swiss Army, Swiss Army man fan. That's a hard sentence to say. And I know you were as well. Yes. And it has that sensibility of it's hitting you over the head with goofiness at times and broad comedy until you realize you're just emotionally wrecked and crying at one point too. It, it awesome. pulls the rug out from my like that. And there's jokes that seem like throwaway gags that are really funny on their own. And then by the time the movie wraps up, they've become like almost an emotional anchor to the film because they keep coming back to it until it's no longer a joke, like until you're really invested in these situations. And that's really all I can say without giving away too much, but hopefully it'll get a home media release. I know you're still wary of the theaters, which I totally respect and understand, but I don't want you to miss out on this stuff for too much longer. I know. This is definitely one that I'm eagerly anticipating. But I've got a couple big weeks ahead of me now with the Northman and the unbearable weight of massive talent both coming out this Mm. weekend. I don't know if I'll be able to see them this weekend, but I'm having a friend visit next weekend and our plan is just to go to the movies and indulge ourselves and some herbal supplements and watch The Northmen and the unbearable weight of massive talent and maybe have a few cocktails in between. That sounds great. I'm it's super excited for The Northmen. So Elizabethtown, I had never seen this movie before prepping for the podcast. I knew about it because like we're going to get into probably pretty soon. It has a little bit of an oversized cultural footprint for less than great reasons. But what did you know about this movie before we started prepping for this episode? And had you seen it? Were you familiar with it? What's your take on Cameron Crowe overall? Just give me like 5,000 words. I knew nothing about this movie. You put it on the list and I'm like, that doesn't even ring a bell at all. A movie about a town named Elizabeth? What the heck? What is this going to be? And then I started to figure out. I like that's your hang up. You're like, no town could be called Elizabeth. That's a terrible name uh, for ridiculous. a town. Elizabeth, New Jersey. Eggs to differ. How are we ever going to get out of the gates with this? And, and the movie had trouble getting out of the gates. The rest of Cameron Crowe's body of work before this, largely pretty good. And I was familiar with his big stuff. I had to refresh myself. He was like a name that would echo around popular culture for a couple decades there. And like I realized, oh yeah, he wrote Fast Times. And then his big writer-director pieces were almost famous. And what am I forgetting? Jerry Maguire, Say Anything. Yeah. When you have movies that instantly recall memes when you say the name and you're like, okay, there's a guy holding up a boombox and Jerry Maguire was making memes before there were memes, right? Show, Show me, me the money. money. Like, like a viral. Even if you never saw that movie, you knew that phrase. You, you knew, knew that phrase. Tom That's Cruise. crazy. But the movie itself, you had no knowledge of? This movie, no. But like those things I'd seen because they were just too big to miss, even for me, who's pretty good at missing a lot of popular media. So yeah, I had a positive impression of Cameron Crowe going into this, those big hits. And then this, it 
raised some big questions. What happened to Cameron Crowe <laughs> in between those movies and this movie? Now, not to sidetrack us too long into a Cameron Crowe retrospective, but had you seen Vanilla Sky? And did you remember liking it or not? Because I feel like that was starting to show some cracks in his facade. But that was a very different movie than we'd seen from him. And this felt like a return to his roots in a way. I know I had watched it. And the only impression that it left was that was something weird. I watched something weird. I don't even know what happened in it. I remembered some of the weird dreamy sequences and the face wrapped in gauze, but I really couldn't tell you what happens in that movie. It does not matter how recently or how many times you've seen it, because that will remain the case. <laughs> That's all you uh, can take away. Yeah. Like we used to watch it fairly often when I was in high school or even like junior high, somebody would crank out the VHS or the DVD and we would gather around and watch it. I think we wanted to feel like we were into serious film. Sure. None of us had any idea what the fuck was going on. But like you, I was less of a fan of Cameron Crowe when this movie came out, not just because I was still young. I wasn't into the whole kind of wistful look back on your youthful days thing yet because I was still in my youthful sure. days. And I guess it didn't appeal to me as much. Like I missed the boat on Almost Famous until much later. And then I knew a lot about this movie without ever having seen it because attentive listeners will know that I refer to a book, The Bible of Blast Zone, mm -hmm. quite often called My Year of Flops by Nathan Rabin. And he was doing a feature at the AV Club is how it started. And Elizabethtown was his first entry in the My Year of Flops feature. The seminal entry. It's on the cover of the book when all the articles were eventually compiled into a book. And this movie was the inspiration for a term that is now so ubiquitous in popular culture. The Manic Pixie Dream Girl was coined by Nathan Rabin when discussing Kirsten Dunst's character in this movie. And can I read you the excerpt when he coined the phrase? Please. Yeah, here's where it all began. All right. The Manic Pixie Dream Girl exists solely in the fevered imaginations of sensitive writer-directors to teach broodingly soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventures. The Manic Pixie Dream Girl is an all-or-nothing proposition. Audiences either want to marry her instantly, or they want to commit grievous bodily harm against them and their immediate family. As for me, well, let's just say I'm not going to propose to Dunst's psychotically chipper waitress in the sky anytime soon. And then he calls to Natalie Portman in Garden State as another prime example. Those are the yin and yang of Manic Pixie Dream Girls. I do find his waitress in the sky comment unnecessarily hurtful towards flight attendants. Yeah, why did it's he have to a take a move? shot at, at flight attendants in the middle of that? This was about filmmaking. But I think he does sum up psychotically chipper is a good descriptor for Dunst's character in this movie. And it was a trope then and it hasn't completely faded. I think people are a little more self-aware of it now. Yeah. But it certainly still comes up at least a few times a year reading a movie review and somebody will offhandedly be like, oh, I'm playing the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't have a ton of examples readily available to me right now. Yeah. And as we talk about misdirected or misplaced aggression here, we have to be careful. This is not Kirsten Dunst's problem at all. Okay, you can quibble with how she tried to, to portray this character, but the problem of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl that I think that Nathan Rabin's trying to point out accurately is that it's bad writing. It's a character yes. that doesn't make sense, doesn't have their own agency, doesn't have their own inner life and hopes and dreams. They exist to serve this weird purpose, which seems creepy when you break it down and you go, oh, it's to make these young men who are maybe avatars of the writers and directors themselves, it's to allow them to flourish and they exist only to serve. And so besides being annoying, it's just weird. Whose idea of a woman is it supposed to represent? Right. They're almost never people you could imagine existing outside of their interactions with the main character. Uh -huh. They just, I don't want to give away the ghost just yet about what Crow would retroactively say to explain away Dunst's, yeah, let's say psych psychotic behavior in this movie. <laughs> he, he tried, I think he co-opted a theory that had caught on online and then was like, yeah, that's what I was doing just to save a little bit of face. But let's not spoil it. Do you want me to talk about the making of this movie a little bit? Yeah. Let's hear how this thing happened. All right. 
Up until 2001, Cameron Crowe was as sure a thing with critics as you could get in Hollywood. His films didn't always make a ton of money, but Say Anything, Singles, Jerry Maguire, and Almost Famous received overwhelmingly positive reviews and have all gone on to have an oversized cultural footprint among film lovers. 2001's Vanilla Sky, a remake of 1997 Spanish film Open Your Eyes, was the first movie he made to be received less enthusiastically by critics, even though it was a financial success. It's more like Vanilla Why. He would follow up Vanilla Sky with a semi-autobiographical romantic comedy about a young shoe executive who has overseen a massive fiasco involving a new shoe, who also has to go to Kentucky to bury his dad, and also has a romance with a young, overly enthusiastic flight attendant, and also, oh boy, did you know that the South has their own way of doing things? I wonder if there will be some culture shock. They should have called this movie almost heinous. Titled Elizabethtown and given a $45 million budget, the movie was a hot commodity in Hollywood with a who's who of young leading men auditioning for the role of Drew Baylor. Ashton Kutcher would be cast after Crow's first choice, Orlando Bloom, was busy filming Ridley Scott's Kingdom of Heaven. Kutcher would be fired during rehearsals when Bloom was suddenly available and Crow was unhappy with the chemistry between Kutcher and female Lee Dunst, and filming would begin in July of 2004, with the majority of filming taking place in Versailles, Kentucky. The much-hyped film would premiere at the 2005 Toronto International Film Festival to pretty disastrous results. Premiering at TIFF? More like WIF. Many criticisms were lobbed at the movie, but chief among them was that it was simply too long, so Crow cut it down to the two-hour, three-minute version we have today. This did not appear to please the critics, as the theatrical version currently holds a 28% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Say anything? More like see anything else. When it was released in theaters on October 14, 2005, audiences were no kinder, as the movie opened in third place with $10.6 million in its first weekend. It dropped to $5.6 million in its second week, eventually earning $52 million, solidifying itself as both a critical and commercial fiasco. Cameron Crowe planted a landmine for himself when at the very beginning of this movie, he gets into this dissertation about what's the difference between a failure and a fiasco. And every critic used uh-huh. that against him afterwards. And actually in the book, My Year of Flops, there are different categories movies get placed in where if it's a movie that failed at the box office, but maybe wasn't so bad, it was a secret success. And then oh. there were failures and fiascos. And what do you think he labeled Elizabeth Town as? A fiasco. It is. You know, we don't exist to take apart movies. We don't necessarily relish getting fiascos in the zone because they're hard to do. They, they can feel like unnecessarily mean, like we're piling on. It's difficult to do and still feel good about yourself to talk shit about other people for an hour and a half. But but we got one that's really weird and it's got a bunch of problems. And so we've got to talk about those problems. Chief among those problems, I think we can agree, is Orlando Bloom himself. <laughs> Yeah. He's not the most evocative actor, right? It's kind of slipped past me. I picked up on the general public impression of him is that he was just maybe a pretty face and not much else. And, you know, I thought of him as Legolas, which was really fortunate. Now that looking back on it and realizing I really do think he's not a good actor at this point, as much as it pains me to talk shit about people's... I don't think that's a controversial take anymore. No, but... He really lucked out, starting with Legolas, which was absolutely perfect for him. Guy is so disconnected, unable to meet humans on their level. That's exactly what the elves are. They're just assholes who Mm -hmm. don't even want to be bothered with humankind. And so it worked out perfectly for him. That was the role he was born to play. And then Hollywood tried to get him to play anything else. And it was rough going. I remember when this movie was coming out, being shocked that Orlando Bloom was starring in a movie that takes place in like contemporary America uh-huh. or like anywhere in the world in, in at least semi-present day, because what was he known for up to this point? He had made Lord of the Rings takes place in a fantasy world. He'd made the Pirates of the Caribbean movie takes place long ago. 
Well, didn't actually take place, but you know what I mean? He'd made Troy and King right. of Heaven. Oh, yeah. The, the man had never put on like a pair of jeans in a movie <laughs> up until this point. He was always rocking some kind of costume. You know, all his movies involve costumes. Yeah. He, and then he put back on the elf ears to play Legolas in the Hobbit trilogy. A disaster that was. But you're right. Like getting cast, he had the look. First of all, he looks very elvish. He's got mm-hmm. sharp features. And, you know, he's, he's obviously a very handsome man. No one can take that away from him. Sure. But he has this kind of flowery detachment to what's happening around him at all times, which makes sense if you're, you know, an immortal being who's a passive participant in a lot of the activities. Yeah, just waiting for your chance to get on your boat and go to the Grey Havens and fuck off from the mortal world. It's less captivating to watch him when he's supposed to be despondent and suicidal over this failure he's had in his professional life. He just seemed bored all the time. We'll keep coming back to it, I'm sure. It's like he's faking. It's like he's acting, which is a weird thing to say about an actor, but you don't want to see your actor's act. You want to see them be people, even if they're outlandish, wacky people that you wouldn't think you could meet in real life. But he's just, he looks like an actor acting or trying somewhat to act. Every scene he's in, it feels like he's the other actor's like partner, just giving them lines so they could practice. (laughs) Like he's okay. Yeah. like I'll I'll read the lines, but I'm not going to try really hard. And then the (laughs) other people are giving it their all like in response to him. But it just, it makes for this weird juxtaposition between the performances because he's so sleepy. I think the first time through this movie, I was distracted by Kirsten Dunst because her character sucks up all the oxygen whenever she gets on screen because of the way they wrote it and the earnest attempts she makes at making it play. She invests a million times more energy than he does in this movie. And then the rest, there's a bunch of great people in this cast. Susan Sarandon, Judy Greer, the character actors in the smaller roles, they're all like bring so much more to the table. And when you go back a second time and look at it, it's exactly like you said. He's just like a stunt dummy in the middle of these scenes. They're acting around him. It's a weird feeling when you look at it. And that's a rare movie that I like less on the second time. You know, I always talk about it, warm up to movies on the second watch. I like this movie a lot less on the second watch because I noticed him more. And when you pay attention to him, you notice that every single emotion he tries to play on his face looks fake and cheap and half-faked. Yeah, over the past like two months, I've seen this movie three fucking times because we were planning to do this a while ago and then it got pushed off the schedule, mm-hmm. but I'd already done my initial watch for that oh, one, no, but so it was sorry. too long to count that as my first watch for this episode. So then I watched it once last week and once this week. And by the third time, even like the filmmaking tricks that Crow employs and the kind of overly manipulative tools he has in his toolbox, yeah. uh, you become immune to them as it goes on like the <laughs> yeah. needle drops i think you called them cloying in your notes yeah they stop working you're wide awake to what's being done to you by crow and you're impervious to it and that makes the movie weaker on subsequent watches yeah he's got some tools in his toolbox and they they do somewhat work still like the musical moments that's his wheelhouse man and he can still get you even if you're like this movie's dumb and people don't seem real i don't get it and then a c- cool song will come in at the right time with a good lyric and then he'll do a little visual to go with it. And you're like, oh, I almost felt something there because he's good at that. I have been listening to the soundtrack pretty regularly since watching this movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, good soundtrack. You can mostly skip the movie and just go right to the soundtrack if you like. It's probably a better experience. Do you want to take us through the first leg of the movie? Yeah, let's jump into this. Here we go. Drew Baylor, played by Orlando Bloom, is a rising star sneaker designer who just flamed out in the worst way possible. His new shoe is a disaster and certain to cost his Nike-esque employer a billion dollars loss. As Drew ponders suicide, he learns that his dad has suddenly died while visiting his hometown of Elizabeth 
Smithtown, Kentucky. Seeing the True's neurotic mom, Holly, played by Susan Sarandon, and his sister, played by Judy Greer, can't deal with anything, Drew must be the one to go out there and retrieve the body. On the flight home, Drew is accosted by a strange and talkative flight attendant named Claire, played by Kirsten Dunst, a Kentucky native who insists on providing him overly detailed driving directions. Yeah, so this opening shoe stuff, I think we we both agreed. It's not bad. It's implausible and silly to think one bad shoe could lose a company a billion dollars in 2005, no less. Uh. You know, it's 17 years ago at this point. So a billion dollars was maybe more valuable then because now it feels like every tech mogul has billions and billions of dollars. But that didn't feel like the case back then. So how the fuck do you invest so much in one shoe that you end up losing a billion dollars? I don't quite get it. But it's clear that like the way it's shot, it moves quick. It's got this comedy premise and this little bit of narrative action that's pretty clear. The director had a piece here and he knew what he was doing. And it tells the story pretty quickly. You get what's going on. You see the trucks backing up full of these recalled shoes and see the very sad man taking the helicopter and considering jumping out the emergency exit. And then I think the more you think about it, the less probable it gets which is okay for, you know, a zany comedy. It's just that they shouldn't have given you quite as long to think about it. For me, that falls apart when I go, wait a minute, this guy is the junior shoe designer. Like they show him working in a cubicle farm. Like, why is it on his shoulders? He approved the billion dollars they spent on this shoe himself. Are there no vice presidents in this company? Is there just him and the owner? Like it doesn't Right, he designed the shoe. Where's the marketing department? Like, where does this fall on their shoulders? Where's the quality control department? (laughs) You know, the testers who are, because there must've been like, apparently, in the longer cut, it's hinted there's like a fault with the design of the shoe. It's not okay. just ugly, even though it is ugly. Yeah. Um, like there's something about it. I think like it makes it whistle when you walk or something. Okay. There, there was some deleted storyline that kind of goes into it. Also, the shoe is hilariously ugly, but also it looks like the sort of shoe you'd see being sold for $600 today. You know, yeah. it has a style that feels almost of 2022, more so than it did in 2005. Maybe Cameron Crowe was just more predictive about fashion than we, we give him credit for. I guess fashion caught up to getting real ugly with the, the Spasmodica. Shoes. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just a hilarious name for a shoe. Even if it was a success, I feel like you're capping where it can go by naming it the Spasmodica. <laughs> yeah. But it sets this tone, like you're saying, that was one of the elements that set the tone for this is a wacky, kooky comedy and it's going to be high spirited and a little bit out there. And and then it, it needs that because then it quickly turns into a suicide theme, right? Which is very dark. And, and in the end, I think almost everyone, us included, who's seen this go, you got too dark for me. Like as zany as the dumb stuff was, it was not fun to see him getting ready to stab himself through the heart. So, and then I don't know, pick a lane. You can do funny suicide, but it's really hard. And the, they don't pull it off here by duct taping a knife to an ex. First of all, this is an impossibly serrated chef's knife. I've never seen a knife look like this in the real world. It looks like something taken off the set of fucking Event Horizon. It's just spiky. Yeah. And it keeps it in a drawer. Don't keep your good knives in a drawer, people. Get a knife block. You know, I like to cook. I, I fancy myself a bit of an amateur chef and get a knife block, man. If you keep a knife in a drawer, it's going to get dull. Yeah. That's neither here nor there. It was probably was still sharp enough to kill him if he went through with it. But he's like jerry-rigging this exercise bike to be a stabbing machine and duct taping things together. And the whole time he's just got like this weird little smirk on his face. I don't know. It managed to trivialize both exercise and suicide at the same time somehow. <laughs> Hasn't been such a painful combination of death and bikes until uh, Mr. Big bought it with his Peloton. Now we all know how that ended, Mr. Big. 
I'm not a great guy, it turns out. I don't remember his name. Fuck. Okay. But yeah, it's gruesome. Like they made it serrated when they didn't have to sort of exaggerate the horror of this thing. Like he's, if you haven't seen the movie, he's taping it to this handle of a exercise bicycle that's this elaborate chrome thing where the handle moves forward and back as you pedal. So it's not that he's going to fall on it once. It's that he's going to keep pedaling and it's going to repeatedly stab him through the chest until he's dead. And that's pretty- I do want to say, it's, it seems like he's jerry-rigged it up to keep pedaling without him. Because he's like standing aside, he's standing back from it and it's still going oh. for a while. So I don't know if he has to keep pedaling, but you still have to force yourself to sit there as you get stabbed over and over, right? Yeah, it was painting this really bloody, horrifying picture. And then it tries to make it funny because then he's, as he's about to try it, like the knife falls out of the duct tape that he stuck it on with. But it's, uh, I don't know if that part was funny. That's where I think it lost a lot of people. There's a lot less. I don't want to condone other methods of suicide, but this is probably one of the worst ways to kill yourself I've ever heard of. I think, getting stabbed in the chest repeatedly. I think maybe, you know, to give benefit of the doubt to Cameron Crowe, maybe he thought it was so ridiculous that that would be funny because no one could really contemplate that. But I guess those of us whose minds are capable of being more dark, maybe Cameron Crowe thought that was just so funny because he couldn't picture it being horrible and sad. I don't know. There's a weird little psychoanalysis I'm getting into of the director, but it was rough. But this is the kind of movie that invites weird psychoanalysis in the director when you're you're the one making these choices, not us. You had to watch it for a podcast, but we didn't make it. And then he gets the call right as he's about to get on the bike. And Judy Greer, forever the sibling on the phone for Jurassic World fans, that's kind of her job. Mm. But she opens with one of my least favorite lines ever uttered in a movie. And it's not her fault, but Drew, it's your sister. (laughs) I have a sister. She never started a phone call by going, it's your sister. That's not how people talk. It's, you know, and it's a very common thing. I know what it's doing, exposition lifting through dialogue, but I'm just so fucking sick of it, man. It's not quite up there with bean battles, but it's pretty bad on my <laughs> oh, list of tropes I that I I thought you said bean battles. I thought we were getting into another food thing, but this is... Uh, we, no. uh, if you want to talk bean battles, though, beans belong in chili. Chili is boring without beans, okay. in my opinion. I know that's controversial for our Texas listeners. Or our Cincinnati crew. <laughs> Oh, Cincinnati, but they put all types of weird shit in it. <laughs> so yeah, she could have just started talking about mom. And then you're like, oh, if they both have a mom, then one of them's the brother and one of them's the sister. And like none of the, the stuff going on with Judy Greer or Susan Sarandon feels like heightened enough to be the broad comedy that they seem to think it is. Oh, she's dealing with grief by, you know, pouring herself into hobbies. Isn't that wacky? No, that's a very common response to grief, I think. Like wanting to learn how to cook or dance is not in and of itself a comedic thing. And maybe if we had more context around the mom and what she was like before, we'd be able to identify why it's funny, but we don't. We only know her as this person who's manic all the time. Right. Basically, like almost off screen, most of her moments are like her panicking in another room or getting into trouble with pots and pans or getting trapped under the hood of a car. Like she's defined as an off screen manic freak out character. A manic pixie freak mom. Which is a really weird thing to do to Susan Sarandon. And you'll see that in the end, he tried to make it up and make her the centerpiece of the movie, which she totally was not by that point. And it's... Just yeah, absolutely don't. crumbles around that, but we'll get to that in the third act. Um, One of my least favorite scenes in a movie I've seen in my entire life. But yeah, she's almost doing what you would do in an animated movie where Patton Oswald has a great bit about when studios see the first cut of an animated movie and they're like, well, it needs more jokes. And then they write jokes for characters to say just out of frame. Like that's almost what she's doing. That's what she she's was in doing. frame, but yeah, like she's, she's doing punch up in a live action movie. Just yelling from the kitchen. Random jokes in the background. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's strange. All right. So let's get to this flight, which I would have fucking popped the emergency door on if I was Drew Baylor <laughs> in this situation, because he is flying from Portland 
to Kentucky and he's the only person on this flight or at least the only person in coach, right? Right. I don't know if there were other people in first class, but it's a pretty empty flight. Have you ever been on a flight that empty? Not that empty. It's fucking great. It seems like a dream unless your flight attendant is Kirsten Dunst Claire. <laughs> right. But they didn't play that emotion. That would have been a cool joke. Like my life is shit. My dad is dead. I've got to go back to this town where I know none of my cousins, but at least I got a sweet empty flight, but that's not how he plays it. He's just a wooden statue in the back of the plane and she makes him a wooden statue in the front of the plane. And she just talks at him for a while. And again, I don't really know what to say about Dunst's performance because I don't think you could put another actor in there and have them do a better job. She's playing the character as written. It just is what it is at that point. The lines <laughs> you need are tough, to bring a, a certain level of energy to make these lines land because they're the words of a crazy person. Yeah. And you know what? On second viewing, that's one thing that maybe made more sense as opposed to getting more irritating. There's a little more of the plot that links up some of the stuff. I thought she was saying the first time is just totally like crazy person talk. It actually connected or like I could see where, oh, that was a moment where she actually did have an insight about Drew. You know, here's where she started to catch on that maybe his dad was not okay, even though she had been blabbing over him and not letting him admit that his dad had died. And so some of those moments are there on multiple watches. But the whole thing, like the first time through, I thought she was a villain or like an actual threatening, <laughs> creepy character because she was so off-putting. You know who she reminded me of more than anybody in the early parts of this movie? Tank Girl. She had a habit of saying weird shit out of nowhere. The way you theorize that Tank Girl is, you know, a god of mischief, you could almost make the same argument for Claire. I don't know if she turned her energy up to counteract Bloom's being turned down so low, or if that's just what, you know, she was told to bring to the role. But we clearly know she's one of our fine actresses. Yeah, she's great. And, and capable of doing great work. I don't know that there's any way to save these lines she has to say and make them palatable. And Cameron Crowe loves these wise and pithy pronouncements from his characters, and he gives everybody some of them in, in this movie in particular. And um, I hate most of them. Yeah, I, I see where they work in movies where they do work. Here, there's so not set up or not justified by the character. Like, we were like, okay, maybe that person almost said something wise, some folksy wisdom, but that character doesn't know that. The character that you've introduced me to would never, ever know something as smart as you just had them say. Mm -hmm. So I have to just throw it out. All right. Should I get us through the, the middle part of the movie or do you have anything else you wanted to add to the beginning? No, let's move on and hear what happens next. All right. Drew arrives in Elizabethtown and meets his cousins, aunts, uncles, and dad's friends, all for what feels like the first time. They want his dad to be buried in an old family plot contrary to the wishes of Drew's dad himself and his widow. Back in Oregon, Drew's sister continues to freak out as their mom has thrown herself into a whirlwind of self-improvement classes. Amidst this family madness and the riotous escapades of the wacky wedding party sharing his hotel floor, Drew finds himself hopelessly bored, so he calls up the flight attendant, Claire. The unlikely pair form an unlikely bond, talking all night, then driving to meet each other for a nearly romantic sunrise rendezvous. The culture clash Kentucky part of this movie is the worst part of this movie, in my opinion. I just, I felt overwhelmed because it's Drew, the emotionless robot, wandering into Aunt Dora's house and it just being packed with uncles and friends and kids and cousins and them all coming up to him. And some of it's shot actually POV where the characters are looking to you. And it's kind of overwhelming, which in itself is, that's maybe one of the relatable aspects of this movie. I can relate to that being a small kid who lived across the country and would go back to big family reunions on the other side side of the continent and feeling overwhelmed by, oh, all these uncles and aunts and cousins who know each other better than I know any of them. So some of that's relatable, but it's also just, 
it's noisy and it, it ends up being cheap and obnoxious. I agree. Yeah. And these characters aren't defined well enough for any of them to feel important, except maybe Paul Schneider as Jesse kind of has an arc. But mm-hmm. does he? I don't know. He has an arc. He has characteristics like we see people trying to give him an arc, but it feels like he just solidly stays in a, a state of arrest development even at the end of the movie. That's like, true. He doesn't learn anything. He doesn't change or grow. He has a lot of details. Yeah, they shove a lot of stuff in there and you're like, oh, okay, why are we learning all that? Like, here's a guy. He's this reckless young single dad who doesn't want to set any boundaries for his little son. And as a result, the son is this crazy, obnoxious little monster storming around the house. And in a normal movie, you go, okay, this is Drew's cousin. There's something to learn here. This guy is like an echo of what Drew could have been if he had grown up in Kentucky. Or is it something about his relationship with his dad that we're supposed to learn about? He had more time because Jesse stayed in Kentucky and got to hang out with his dad in his native environs. And if there's hints that any of those things could have been true, but I don't know that any of those were true. He's just a guy who has a band and he gets to do a song at the end. Right. And I I love Paul Schneider as an actor. I almost wonder if he's like difficult to work with in a way, because it feels like he should be a bigger star than he is. Oh, something's holding him back. It feels like it. I don't know. When I saw him in All the Real Girls, I was very taken by him. And then he did great work in The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Landed the the Parks and Rec job. I guess I'm looking up his IMDb now. He's still working. He just hasn't done a ton of movie work lately. A lot of TV stuff. He's in a show called Florida Man coming out soon. But he's also looked 39 for the last 20 years. I almost found it (laughs) tough to see him in Orlando Bloom as contemporaries. Like Orlando Bloom looks 10 years younger than him in this movie. But he's got, you're right, he's got charisma. And again, it doesn't do Orlando any favors to stand next to other actors with charisma. There's a lot of good actors playing across from Orlando Bloom in this movie. And yeah, he's all the worse for it every time. I also, I find it like weirdly offensive. His family just straight up wants to disrespect his dad's wishes as to what to do with his dead body, doesn't it? It feels like it's played for laughs and like, oh yeah, they want to bury him because it's tradition. I feel like if somebody gives explicit demands for how their body should be handled when they die, you fucking follow them, right? (laughs) Yeah. And it's weird that you mentioned that because actually Drew mostly says nothing of any import. But one of the things he says is like, hey guys, this is the last word that my dad said to us, his nuclear family on the subject. So respect that. And that's actually like a pretty cold blooded moment for these people, but it doesn't quite play that. Like it That could have been a really, whoa, sorry, like you just exposed this giant gap in decorum of the family somehow. But it ends up just playing as more of wacky comedy and he keeps getting on the phone. But mom, shouldn't, should we cremate? We said we were going to cremate, right? Shouldn't we do it? But they're saying no. It's like an argument that no one's really fighting and they just keep restating it. You you could have made it into an interesting, and this is the thought I've just had, so it's not fully fleshed out, but almost like an examination of the dichotomy of surface level Southern hospitality versus maybe like some darkness yeah. the undercurrent of it, of a blind following of tradition, you know? That's, yes, that's a very good thought for a first thought. Yeah, that could be a very interesting deep thread to pull on. But there's like, aren't these, aren't these guys wacky? Like they want to bury him even though he doesn't want that. That's, no, man, that's a pretty like egregious thing. Like you're making these people unlikable, whether you realize it or not by having them so firmly plant their flag on this one issue. Yeah, if you think about it. But then it bothered me how much it was an argument. I'm like, this is kind of a settled deal. Why does he keep getting on the phone and going, but mom, are you sure? Should we cremate? Shouldn't I? I'm like, what are you even doing? Why are you calling your mom and telling her about it? I couldn't make sense of the whole thing. It was, I guess, not grounded enough to really hold up to any scrutiny. Yeah, and then there's the the other fact that he's 28 and hasn't seen any of these people. What sounds to be like almost a lifetime for most of them. I guess we can just chalk that up to like his mom being at odds with his dad's side of the family for so long. 
that's intellectually, I had to have that explained to me because they do say that like, oh yeah, they don't like the wife because they feel like she took him out of Kentucky, but they don't play any of that emotion. That would actually be an interesting emotion to play. Are they really like, oh, hey, Drew, we like you, but we don't like your mom. Was that in the film? I don't know. I don't think anyone said a bad word about his mom to his face. Like his mom would tell him reasons they don't like her over the phone and be like, right. they don't like me because of this and this. They think I stole your dad from moved into California, even though we live in Oregon. That's another recurring joke. They keep calling them the Californians, even though they live in Oregon and yeah. they lived in California for 18 months or whatever. Yeah. So it's really, I think we, we get it all from Sarandon's side. Right. It was a major tell, don't show kind of a plot point. Right. And everyone's perfectly warm to him for the most part. So it's not like they're holding any grudge over his head. Mm. So it's really thread that goes nowhere except to have her win them all over with their big stand-up comedy and tap dance routine at the end of the movie. Yeah. What else from this section? Do you want to talk about Samson before we get into the romance oh, at all? Oh, sure. Yeah. Talk about the young Samson. I have two kids. They're, they're both younger than Samson. I feel like you can explain away inconsistent characterization of kids, but being like, oh, they're kids. But like kids Kids are still people with their own personalities and stuff. They don't turn on a dime from scene to scene. You know, like they, they might be prone to fits of wildness and tantrums, but like they're the same person all the time for the most part. And I feel like Samson is a different character depending on what the scene needs from him every time. Yeah, they didn't really make him a character. They made him like a comedy device. You know, he's a little trouble machine. So he just does whatever. They're like, we need to escalate from beat to beat. So I think the first thing we see him doing is taking the ham off the table and giving it to the two dogs to fight over, which is yeah. like one of those naughty kid things that you can go, oh, that's relatable because the kid is thinking about, he cares about the dogs, right? He wants them to eat because they're hungry. And so like, oh, kids are cookie like that. But then the next scene, he just runs into a room and just shrieks as loud as he can for 10 seconds. And then they're like, oh, we got to go bigger. So then he goes out in the driveway and starts up a Cadillac and pulls it into the street. Which that like veers away from comedy into like potential tragedy. And then he just fucking pukes on Bruce McGill, which yeah. the Bruce McGill character in this movie never worked for me as much as I like him as an actor. He brings a lot of energy. He has one moment when he comes into the party and, and freaks everybody out with the little gotcha moment. And then he gets barfed on by Samson. It's like Samson barfs on him and then it disappears. It's almost like they did the barf in post, right? Like they just, right. they And if you're, trying, if you're trying to make the point that Jesse's not a good dad and isn't looking after his son enough, sure, like having his son start a car and start driving down the road is one way to do it. But like a kid getting sick on somebody else is not like the dad's fault. Right. What does it show us about Jesse as a father, which all these Samson scenes... Samson scenes. That's a hard thing to say. All these Samson scenes are to show us about Jesse's laissez-faire attitude towards parenting. But him puking on Bruce McGill doesn't show us any of that. It's just gross for the sake of being gross. Maybe Samson had eaten some of the doggy ham. He was screaming about it, trying to get his attention because he had a terrible tummy ache. And then he was going to just drive himself to the ER when they stopped him because his dad wasn't uh, paying attention. Maybe he was just driving to like the CVS to get some Pepto. <laughs> get something for this. Man, my stomach's killing me, dad. I'll be right back. Well, that now he sounds like a responsible kid. He's just <laughs> yeah. handling problems on his own. I, I kind of like him now. He's uh, he's resourceful. <laughs> Give me the keys to the Fleetwood. I got to just run down to the corner store. All right. So let's talk about the romance or, or relative lack thereof between Dunst and bloom. The setup of it is overworked and implausible. It's like a little bit of a mini block comedy scene. You know, Drew's on the phone with way too many people. He's clicking back and forth. His sister's yelling at him. His ex-girlfriend is berating him. And then in the middle of that, she calls him back and it's too much. It's like some overworked comedy that doesn't really take you anywhere as much of the movie is. And then in the middle of that, it turns into a love story because he realizes, I guess, that the person he's having the most fun clicking over to is her. 
and then suddenly they hit it off, I guess, because he's bored. And I don't know. He's in this palatial hotel room, by the way. What did oh, he get? Like the presidential <laughs> suite. Yeah. He's got a, like two living rooms. He's all kinds of couches and shit. But yeah, this movie could have been called Phone Calls because so much of it takes place on the phone. And Phone Calls is a way to build a bond between two people. Like you said, it's overdone, but it works. But then they meet up right after the phone calls and they're like, oh, we were better on the phone. It's like, what are you trying to sell us about your love story? Are we supposed to believe that's sincere that they were better on the phone that they don't have any spark when they meet in person because then why are we invested in what else is happening it seems like it's played straight like they mean it when they say it because right. they go their separate ways without consummating their relationship at all at that point i don't even think they they might have a brief kiss but they don't you know like full-on make out right yeah i don't know if they even kissed in that scene like almost did or something i think you're onto something there that should work in a romance or a rom-com where they almost get together and it's their fears or it's whatever personal problem is holding them back splits them apart right and that, that really works as a filmmaking thing to bring people almost together and you go, oh, it's almost going to happen and something tears them apart. But you're right when they play it like they make a calm, rational, logical decision. No, this is wrong. We don't like each other. We don't need each other. That dispels the tension that you would otherwise be building by tearing them apart. Right. I'm also not a fan of the, the plot contravance Contrivance. that drives a wedge between our romantic leads towards the end of the second act. But it's there for a reason. You know, it's tried and true. It, it serves a real narrative purpose. Having them meet and realize they have no chemistry, like, takes all the air out of the balloon. <laughs> yeah. And maybe I can't believe that you would write that line for them to have supposed to have actually meant it, right? We have no chemistry should be the cover, you know, them blustering because they're actually afraid of how much chemistry they do have, you know? Problem is you got Orlando Bloom as one of the co-leads. Yeah. <laughs> He's got no chemistry with anybody. That's true. It, it rings true when they say it. <laughs> He's totally correct when he says it. And then there's, I don't know, a lot of their conversation felt like they wrote stand-in dialogue and they were like, well, we'll make the dialogue better before we get to filming. We just we need to drive the point across. They're talking for a long time and there's this whole weird, who are they? Oh, they's them. And it's this is bad stand-up from the 90s. And they talk yeah. about being the substitute people, like two fucking people that look like Orlando Bloom and Kirsten Dunst having that conversation is insulting to the rest of us. It's her mopey theory about we're not good enough to be the stars of the world. We're the second string players, I think is what she means by that. It doesn't totally make sense what she says, but yeah, it doesn't hold up when you're looking at them on screen. And she's already brought up Ben quite a few times at this point in the movie, which never really gets a resolution, right? It made more sense the second time through the first time through, I thought she brought up Ben just as a random name. And then I guess I wasn't paying that good attention. Ben was this guy she's in a relationship with, but it's the timing of when it's brought up. It doesn't even feel real. And it might not be because so much of what she says turns out to be deceptive or totally made up. So you wonder, what was Ben? Was he real ever? Well, spoiler alert, they end up together and there's never any kind of resolution about Ben. Did she go break up with him? Apparently in the first draft of the movie, Ben was revealed to be her brother. So she like maybe was using oh. it as like a feeling out tool to be like, well, I have this other guy. And if he gives up that easy, maybe then it's not worth pursuing because he heard about this other guy, but it's really just my brother. That would have been worse. Which isn't great, but at least it, <laughs> at least it you know makes sense. And it's explained at some point. Now it just seems like she's cheating on her boyfriend with Orlando Bloom. And only at the end, she's like, oh, he was supposed to meet me, but he couldn't because of the, the storms in Georgia. And then he does other, there weren't really any storms in Georgia. And she's like, no, he just forgot. I don't know. It's so much of it's done with sort of half explains off screen stuff. It's a really weird thing to be one of the anchor points for how or whether their relationship is going to work out is this 
just this Ben. Hey, wait, is he talking about old Ben who lives out in the desert? I forgot that Luke Skywalker line. I couldn't that. <laughs> I think he calls him a hermit in that scene too. The hermit who lives out in the desert. Oh, we're going to get more of that too. More, more Ben in the desert coming soon to Disney Plus. <laughs> All, All right. right. Why don't you walk us through the ending? Let me bring it home. Drew continues to oppose his relative's demands for a traditional burial. Meanwhile, he bonds further with Claire when they go shopping together for a cremation urn. After Drew connects with the family by cleverly solving the problem of their annoying, unruly children, he has a change of heart about his dad's cremation, but it's too late. Wah, wah, dad's been cremated. Oh no, his dying wish was fulfilled. How terrible. <laughs> Claire shows back up at Drew's hotel and they finally hook up. But the next morning, he tells her he's a big, huge failure and pushes her away. I mean, a shoe nobody likes. Oh, sorry, I keep interrupting you. Just, this is so stupid. <laughs> the family holds a memorial gathering, and Drew's mom, Holly, makes a surprise appearance, charming her former husband's dubious family with her new skills in stand-up comedy and tap dancing. After a successful remembrance of his father, Drew plans to head back home and finish his interrupted suicide. But Claire makes one last effort to connect, providing Drew an elaborate multimedia mixtape scrapbook map for the road trip home. Alone on the drive with only his father's ashes for company, Drew is charmed by the music Claire picked out for him and the sights she put on his itinerary. Then Claire surprises Drew by showing up at one of his stops halfway across the country, and the two finally admit they're in love. I want to say this before we move on to doing things in order like we usually do, but let me get this straight. He decided to scatter his ashes where some random girl he just met gave him a road trip itinerary. She's like, oh, I really like Memphis. Go to Memphis and talk to this fucking old guy. And he's like, oh, I guess I'll sprinkle some of my dad's ashes outside this bar. Like, your dad has no connection <laughs> to any of these places. What the fuck are you even doing? You should scatter <laughs> your dad's ashes in places that mean something to him. If you care about, you know, like, I don't, you could do whatever you want with my ashes. You could, you know, throw them out the window. But if this guy Which cared enough. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, like, why are you scattering your dad's ashes in places that have personal significance to the flight attendant you met four days ago? <laughs> We're going to talk about the various interpretations of what Claire is. Hmm. is. Is she a Tanker-esque, impish, supernatural being of some sort? In this sense, she kind of hexes him, right? Like, she puts him under this weird spell and forces him to scatter his father across the country at her whims. Yeah, I know we see flashbacks to Drew and his dad taking a road trip similar to this one when they were, like, four and then he also says we should have taken this drive years ago. So I, I don't feel like this trip ever actually, I don't know. It's fucking confusing. But Oh, that's a good point. The thing is that whole dad reconciliation happens in his head. We've never met the dad. We see him in these wordless flashback montages with music and a couple black and white shots of him dancing with the kid or something like it's pretty thin. And yet it's supposed to be the big moment for this guy who we couldn't even tell if he liked his dad. For 90% of the movie. Like, we didn't know right. the problem. The reason he was disconnected from the whole family is he didn't have a relationship with the guy. It's the kind of thing you might be able to get across with the little thing we call acting, of which Orlando Bloom does not do enough of in this Is movie. that what was missing from this movie? A lead performance? Yeah. His relationship with his dad being strained was not obvious, probably to anyone that watched this movie, until the end when he, like, reconciles with him, like you said. Then you're like, oh, wait, was there a problem between them? Like. <laughs> Yeah. Were they just distant? Were something keeping them apart? Was this movie just about missed opportunity? That seems to be what, you know, Susan Sarandon's character talks about. Well, I should have learned to be funny while I was alive. I should have learned to cook while I could have fed my husband. But those are also just little tossed off little ideas. They're not the heart of the movie. They don't really connect with anything. All right. Let's, oh, the, <laughs> do you have a handle on the timeline of this movie? I know you mentioned some stuff about the Hawaii trip being confusing timeline wise, but do you know, like... 
How long is this movie supposed to take place over? What period of time are we talking about here? So I, I nailed something down on the second watch because it's very confusing. I thought it was a long weekend. Like I thought he left on Friday morning after getting his news and then he got in the car on Sunday night. But I think it's actually a full week. And the reason I think that is there's a brief moment in the first segment when he's getting interviewed by the business magazine journalist who's like, we're going to do a whole story about what a giant failure you are. And he goes, it's coming out in a week. It'll hit the newsstands next Sunday night. And that's the ticking clock that sets the whole movie off. Well, then we don't know how long he's driving for. So we don't know how long he's in Kentucky, right? Because that's quite a long road trip he's taking. He could have been on the road for four or five days by the time the paper comes out. That's true. Yeah, I thought now that you say that, yeah, I thought he left there like Sunday night and the magazine would be big news on Monday. But then it does seem like he's already visited a couple cities by the part of the itinerary she put together where she's like, today's the day the magazine's out. I'm giving you five minutes to go get it off a newsstand and cry. And then you got to move on. It's very hard to follow. That's not the only thing in there. There's some real weird stuff and notes that I made about she keeps showing up. She keeps like entering his life and then going, I got to get back to work or, oh, I'm going on this vacation to Hawaii tomorrow. And then the next day she, all she does is pop up in his hotel or in his life. Like at this and then point. she's like, no, we're not going to, we're not going to be together. So like, you just keep showing up at my hotel room. <laughs> she keeps leaving. And then the next day he's going about his business. Oh, I guess she's out of my life. And then she's like, oh, hi, I'm at your memorial service. But yeah, then she's like, oh, I've got a vacation to Hawaii. You won't see me again. And then he does see her. She comes back and then she I goes. Like you, you give her like a James Cagney voice. Almost like, ah, oh, you won't see me again, see? <laughs> <laughs> You won't catch me around, you mugs. And then she shows up, ah, I'm back, see? And then she goes, oh, by the way, Ben is coming tomorrow. And then in the next scene, she goes, I have a personnel interview tomorrow morning. And this was like 36 hours after she was supposed to leave for Hawaii. How is she planning to do a visit with her boyfriend in Kentucky and a personnel interview while she was supposed to be on the beach at Waikiki? I don't, I, I couldn't make that work. Yeah, Hawaii is not like around the block either. You're not, it's not a place you go for three days or two days. <laughs> You're going for a week at least. Especially from Kentucky. There's no direct flights from Lexington, Kentucky, or Louisville, as she makes it clear. Um, yeah. Unless it was what she traded one shift with another flight attendant and she was just going to It did say that there. she traded with someone to go there, but it, it sounded to me like she was going to take some time while she was there. It did. There was some hint that she was going to be on a beach kicking back. The movies, is, it's about vibes, man. It's not about it timelines. We got to talk a little bit about how Drew solves the problem of the rowdy children, which is another oh, subplot this movie has that doesn't fucking need. But he gets a videotape from Dunst. This tape, weirdly, I kind of like the subplot it, about the kids themselves, like take it or leave it. But then he solves this problem that we didn't know we had about rowdy kids with one of the strangest things I've seen in a mainstream movie in a long time. It's really weird. And I need you to explain because I missed she gave him the tape. That's where he got it. I'm pretty sure she gave him the tape as like a way. Yeah, because he was complaining about the kids. I, and I think I totally she gives it to that him. Scene. Oh, shit. I could also be wrong, too. It makes sense it has somewhere to come from, because in my version of the movie where I missed that little handoff, I thought he just pulled it out of his ass. Like, oh, by the way, I have tapes of Bob the Builder, who's actually <laughs> Bob the Destroyer. And this is how I charm kids when I visit relatives. He pops this thing in and it's just so <laughs> weird. It's this guy. I think his name's Rusty. And he's explaining to these kids that he built this house and it was a really good house. But now the house has termites. And take it from me, if listeners, don't blow your house up because you have termites. <laughs> there are treatments you can get to stop them from eating your home. But he says, now that the house has termites, I have no choice but to blow it up. So I'm going to do that. But only if you promise to be quiet so you can watch it. And the kids are entranced by it. And then he blows the house up and the kids are thrilled to pieces and literally under a spell the entire time. <laughs> 
yeah, more evidence that something supernatural is going on with Claire because that was just creepy. Like even before they knew that a house was going to be blown up, they had already shut up and were transfixed just by this guy in a hard hat and his face on the screen. Yeah. But so was I, to be fair. (laughs) Yeah. The guy had charisma. He was good. He was one of the more compelling characters in this movie. Rusty. Yeah. If you could find the video itself on YouTube, it's worth a watch. I guess called Rusty Learns to Listen. Rusty's Learning to Listen, right? (laughs) Yeah. That's what you called it in the notes. Is that what you just, did you just make that up? No, I think I wrote that down. I think it says that on the little title screen for hot second when it comes on. But yeah, it's like, is he solving Jesse's problem? Is he solving his own problem that he's just annoyed? He keeps having to go to Dora's house and it's just so loud? Or is that this is supposed to be, I came in, I connected to my cousin who has trouble disciplining his child. And as a way to bond with my cousin and the whole family, I have cleverly solved the problem of children. Like what? Oh, you put him in front of a screen and they shut the fuck up? Is that like the grand (laughs) wisdom of this movie? We don't fucking know that already? (laughs) Well, Jesse didn't know that, but Jesse didn't know a lot about raising a kid. Being a dad. I tell you what he knows about though, rocking out with his, his cock was in. Uh, his cock was not out, but he, on that note, I guess it's time to talk about the funeral. Okay, sure, why not? <laughs> the ruckus plays at the end, so I'll save my notes about them for after Sarandon's big speech. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the worst things I've seen in a movie ever. I've There's no joke. Like, I had such secondhand embarrassment watching this. It's poorly written. I can't even judge it as a performance because the material is so cringy. It's like what you could say about Claire's whole character. I don't know if any other actor could have done a better job because what is she working with? So she goes into this long spiel. It's a spiel. I won't call it a stand-up spiel. routine because that's, that's disrespectful to stand-up comedians. And the the joke of this is she hugged a man and he got a boner. And she right. says the word boner like it's the punchline of the joke because I guess it is as written. And the audience hoots and hollers and is literally like just pissing their pants because she said the word nuts. boner. They're <laughs> laughing. They're applauding. And then this is, this, I swear to God, there's more than one shot of people pumping their fists in the air as they laugh. <laughs> this is so funny. Like one guy's not. puking in the background because he laughed too hard. <laughs> It's aggressively unfunny. It's almost to the point where it's a joke about how do people in social situations overreact to try to be sociable. But it's not that either. It's just a really bad scene. (laughs) He thought he wrote, I I think Cameron Crowe, based on some of Claire and Drew's monologuing earlier in the film and this scene, I feel like he wanted to be a stand-up comedian. Mm. Couldn't quite get it. So he poured all his aspirations into these scenes. And I'm glad he stuck with, you know, writer-director. Because and, and it's, you know, he ain't got it. And then you're like, okay, that was wonderful. Susan Sarandon, what could you possibly do to tap, to top that uh, hilarious comedy set? You're tight To tap five. that hilarious. <laughs> you said the word tap and now. That's a Freudian slip. <laughs> she did tap it. She said, cue the music. I've also been taking dance classes. She tap dances to Moon River. It's a three-part sequence, you guys. This character has very clearly been shown to us as being a side character, not the main thing. She's yelling shit from off screen. She's trapped under the hood of a car. She won't even show her face on the screen. And in the end, she has a, like a 12-minute, three-section, like heightening beats of a redemption sequence that's as if this was movie was her movie. It's not her movie at all. Not even Nobody close. cares. Nobody cares about her or what her character journey is. Like, this movie's fucking over two hours long. You want to shorten it, just cut that whole fucking speech and tap dance routine. It changes nothing. Yeah. Don't <laughs> even send her to Kentucky. She wasn't planning yeah. on coming. They showed up unexpected. Leave her at home. Have another phone call. This is not going to her husband's wake, though. That's it's so strange. 
But like, that's not even the real, she was supposed to invite them to Oregon for the actual memorial service. This is just the family hijacked him and did their own shit because they have. This family's kind of evil. Yeah. (laughs) You got a grieving widow. Oh, but we're going to steal your husband's dead body and not give it back. So you have to come to Kentucky now. Like you don't got enough on your plate. Yeah. It's pretty fucked up. But she learned stand-up comedy. We're led to believe she learned it. I'm still not convinced. <laughs> Tap dancing, cooking, auto repair, plumbing in, whatever, four days. Yeah. What- I thought that was ridiculous when I thought it was a long weekend. But I, now that I realize she had a full seven days, that makes sense. We're still not sure she had seven days. We don't know how long Drew's driving for. You're saying if he took off two days ahead of the thing, like that could have been four or three four days. Five yeah, days. Like, yeah, we don't know. We don't know how much time he's spending in all these places. Claire gave him a very strict itinerary by the minute almost. That's true. Which pre-GPS seems cruel. I would have gotten lost like 25 times. It's so fanciful. This movie is so fanciful and yet it doesn't win us over to really make us want to go there. And maybe the road trip is closest where you can say. Oh yeah, I I do have some thoughts on the road trip, but let's not leave the funeral yet because you want to talk about fanciful. How is Ruckus playing in the pouring rain with electric instruments? Not pouring rain, it's a sprinkler system because a literal flaming eagle is flying across the wake, but they're playing through amps. I know there's one acoustic guitar, but he's still plugged in because it's not going to be loud enough to hear everybody else. It's just, they would have all died. As a musician, I was terrified at those shots when the water started pouring over them and they're strapped into their marshals. I remember, I think it was at Woodstock 94, Gavin Rosdale from Bush playing Glycerine in the pouring rain and everybody making a big deal about it because he could have died. Oh, shit. You know, that was like an iconic performance because he was taking a risk to be there. But these four dickheads from Kentucky are just playing a nine minute song in the pouring fucking rain the whole time. And they made it all about them, which is like weird. Yes. The big climactic moment about family coming together. It's just this one guy who like finally got to live his dream. And it's not his funeral. The song has no meaning to the dead guy or his immediate family. They're just. I, mean, they're I guess just it's a good song to play at a funeral. But yeah, like. It's a good song. They do a good job, but then they actually ruin the memorial service. They set fire to the hotel ballroom and set off the sprinklers and evacuate the whole building. Who's getting the bill for that? Drew doesn't have a job. No. (laughs) He had a nice apartment. I mean, mean, sure, he's got some money squirreled away, but he just threw all his stuff in the garbage. He could have sold some of it to pay the $40,000 repair bill for this fucking hotel ballroom he's going to get hit with because he's the only one that's checked in there. They got his card on file. <laughs> oh, but it's the company card. Remember, he oh, gives her the company card. Mercury Shoes is going to get hit with the $40,000 bill for repairs. Oops. Sorry, Phil. You deserved it for being a dick. He wasn't a dick, though. He was very nice to him, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Considering he lost him a billion dollars. Now, whether or not he should have been allowed to lose him a billion dollars speaks to their management style. But like you said, with Jesse making the funeral all about himself, the movie keeps presenting us these characters doing really shitty things and wanting us to see them as like folksy and cute. No, they're all fucking bad people. I kind of like that version of the movie when the movie is called Shitty People and it's an Adam Sandler film. I guess that makes it more interesting, but that's not what they were trying to do, you know? So you succeeded at something by accident, I guess. So can we talk about the suicide subplot? Because we've just been through some big shit on stage, right? First, Susan Sarandon brought the house down, a three-act bravado (laughs) performance. Then she's followed up by Ruckus, reunited for one night. The incredible performance of Freebird. They burn down the hotel. Then the movie takes that moment to get Drew back on screen with Claire and remind you like, uh, this is it. I'm wrapping up here. So I'm going to go home and kill myself like I planned to the whole time. And you're like, what? That was still on the table this whole right? time? That's it's very jarring when it comes back up because at that point you're like, well, he's gone on like this journey. I think yeah. part of it is that Bloom just doesn't play despondent well. He just seems like he's on his annex at all times. He just seems very laid back and relaxed. Oh, yeah. And then you're like, yeah, I'm going to go kill myself now. 
there, there's no inkling that he like he's in pain or in torment at any moment. That's true. I can imagine another actor like going through these zany family scenes with kids shrieking and doing dumb stuff and just knowing by the look on his face that he is ready to die at all times like that. That would have added a lot of drama to the movie, but that drama is not there. Right. Right. And we'll get into some of the other actors that auditioned for this part and wanted it. I think all of them would have been better. And I don't know that Orlando Bloom's a bad person, so I don't want to you know, attack him personally too much. Right. But he's just not good in this movie. And oh. he drags it down. He is the albatross. The writing might be the albatross, but he's at least like a little seagull at least. It's like a little flaming seagull. <laughs> a little flaming on seagull on playing Freebird. <laughs> and then we get to this fucking mixtape that is just a logistical nightmare. What was her budget for making this? It comes in its own little suitcase. It's got scrapbooks and mixtapes. And it is just an undertaking that would take a single person years to put together. And she yeah. must have already taken this trip herself to take all the Polaroids and photographs and details, right? And drawings. And yeah, and she knows all the places. I guess maybe this is the main evidence that she's supernatural to me because no one could know this. Or it's the evidence that, to the contrary of our argument of how much time has passed, maybe he was holed up in that hotel for a month. She's like, hold on, I'm still working on the scrapbook. Don't have the memorial this weekend. Can you push it one more week? I've got work to do. I have a darker theory. Okay. The road trip is purgatory and the farmer's market is heaven and he's meeting his angel Claire there in heaven. Oh my gosh. I just came up with this. Because it's the only way I'll buy that she was able to put this all together is that it was some part of the afterlife. It's definitely fantastical. It's it's too much. It's so many CDs. Half the montage is him changing CDs on his CD player and his car. I would have gone for a folksy road movie if you wrap up the funeral subplot in 40 minutes and we've got an hour to have fun with this road trip and maybe you rewrite it so she's with him for it or I don't know, something. I like seeing cool parts of America. Yes. You know, I like sunsets with people driving and I like good music. You know, I'll take a road trip movie, but it's a very strange epilogue to just tack on to the end. And that's, again, one of those parts that Cameron Crowe's good at that stuff. He actually digs up a bunch of interesting places and the way he shoots and combines the music with it. As much as I was pissed at this movie by this point, and especially at how long it had been running and how much more time I could see was still on the clock. I'm like, I have to admit, like these scenes, they can stir something in you, you know, a good song comes on and some cool Americana scenes. And you're like, oh yeah, this feels good. So what if the movie, what if the midpoint where he hits a low is the funeral? Like he meets the family, he tries to connect to them and it goes badly. And he leaves the funeral like, fuck it, it didn't work. I couldn't reconnect with the memory of my dad or any of my family. And I've been a real low point. And then he goes on the road trip and the road trip actually turns him around because of the magic mm -hmm. of the angel Claire. Right. Or in that version of the movie you just said, I don't know that Claire needs to be there, <laughs> at least not in the sense that she was in this movie. Like, No, he could have a spontaneous road trip. Yeah, I'm going to drive home to Portland or drive somewhere because you wouldn't go from Kentucky to Memphis to get to Portland. But yeah, he could have dug up, connected to the dad. Like you said, it shouldn't be Claire's road trip. It should be the road trip that he and his dad would have taken. So give him a trunk full of his dad's shit that Aunt Dora puts in the back of his car when he pushes off and then have him discover stuff and go, wait, dad spent a summer working as a carny in Alabama. I got to go see this place, you know, or whatever it is. Yeah. That would have at least connected things. No, that, that sounds like a better movie, man. We should just write fucking screenplays instead of doing a podcast. <laughs> we should. The last 10 minutes of our podcast are full of screenplay ideas that we should really be writing down and trying to develop. I'm going to put out my big idea about this movie now, because I know you usually take the floor. Oh man, I got so. nothing. I'm going to let you, I'm going to give you the floor tonight. I'm going to break up the free bird and start the uh, pulleys going. This is not the outro. I still have some behind the scenes stuff. About okay. Maybe I want to get into, but sure. it feels like 
Crow used up all the good autobiographical stuff he had in Almost Famous. And what he was left with was like a collection of places he'd been to that he thought were cool and like stories he'd heard or that had happened to him that he thought were interesting. And he tried to make a movie out of them, but none of them were as cool or as interesting as he thought. So we're left. That's why I feel like the reactions to things in this movie don't line up with our expectations. Judy Greer saying that, you know, oh, mom's frantic and she's crazy. She wants to learn how to make casserole. Oh, wow. That's so zany. Or Yeah, you got to come home. You got to help me. Come (laughs) home. Mom is learning to cook food. That's an emergency. She changed her own oil. This is insane. Or she said the word boner twice. Literally the funniest thing I've ever heard. Like (laughs) they, they all feel like things that maybe happen in real life. And because reality is boring and terrible. Maybe they did seem significant at the time, but you have to have a heightened version of reality to make it land in a movie. And he just he didn't take those steps to take. All right, well, this is what happened, but maybe I could make it a little more movie ready by adding a detail or two. It feels like he's just reciting stories from his family's photo albums, like going through. Oh, that was the day that, you know, this kid threw a ham on the floor. Like no one fucking cares. That's like things (laughs) you talk about with your own family because it's interesting to you guys because you were there. hundred percent. hundred percent. Like I I totally I could almost picture him with a old cardboard box full of spiral bound notebooks. And he's like, okay, wait, these are all my almost famous ones. I haven't touched these. What's in here? And just like paging through, looking for little scraps, writing this movie that way. Did you have anything else about the plot you wanted to get into before we start going into the behind the scenes stuff? Ah, let's skip behind the scenes because clearly something amazing was going on. All right. So there was a lot of a lot of casting what ifs with this movie. We know that Kutcher was cast and I don't know how I feel about Kutcher in this role. I think he's a much smarter guy than people give him credit for. I don't think Uh he's the best dramatic actor. I think it's almost a wash with him in this. If that does feel like it would have been a stretch for him to really bring out the soulful stuff that maybe could have made this part fly. But do you know who I think... What had been interesting is his famous co-star and Dude, Where's My Car? Uh, Sean William Scott was up for oh, the role. I know you're a Scott fan. I am because I've seen him do a little more and come into his own as an actor. In 2005, I, I think it would have been a stretch for him. I don't know if he had the skill then and just wasn't given an outlet to show it or if he matured into that. I think now he would, well, he's too old for it now, but you know what I mean. Like the actor he is now would, would be really good at the role, but that's interesting that he was even considered for it because he was just a pure comedian at that point. Some other names that were up for it. Tell me what you think of these guys. Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. No question. I think he can handle everything this movie would throw at him. Yes. And then some, but I'm a, I'm a Gyllenhaal head. You know me. Colin Hanks. Interesting. I'm not sure he's the guy either. I can't see him pulling off the depth that a Gyllenhaal could actually make you believe there's something to this person. Colin Hanks could maybe pull off the surface sadness that Bloom couldn't. Right. The despair. (laughs) Yeah. Which he plays sad very well. I think probably in most of his roles, he's sad to some degree. His eyebrows just stay up like that most of his entire life. Yeah. He's got a real droopy dog energy to him. (laughs) Chris Evans. I don't know. I don't think we've really seen Chris Evans do anything this dramatic still. I'm trying to He's either playing like like a hero or like a shithead. Right. I can't see him as a sympathetic victim. The last one I'm sad to admit probably would have done a good job, but you know, now it would have been a much harder movie to enjoy in 2022. Well, it's a hard movie to enjoy in 2022 because it's bad. But James Franco was in the running as well. I Mm. think he could pull it off. But obviously, everything with him is complicated now. Yeah. But yeah. But in 2005, I feel like he, he could have played this role and done a good job. But out of all these guys, I think Gyllenhaal's the one who can probably make this movie salvageable. Yeah, that would have made its 
something. I wonder what he could have done at the time as a star to bring some attention and heat to this. He wasn't that far along in his what, career, was he? I'm going to pull up his IMDb right now and see what he was doing. He'd already made Bubble Boy, so he was an international super... Oh, that was a joke. 2005 was Brokeback Mountain year. Oh, okay. So And Jarhead. So he's coming into his own as a dramatic actor and moving away from... The, the day after tomorrow, I think he's still playing a high schooler or, or maybe like an early college kid. So he's still getting some kind of child star-ish roles. Donnie Darko, of course, was 2001. But then by 2007, he's doing Zodiac. So by that point, he's in full-blown leading man, dramatic powerhouse. So I think in 2004, when this movie was filming, he had the chops for it because Brokeback Mountain filmed right around this time. It would have been an interesting a- bridge, yeah, from light to darkly comic, but sad to serious actor stuff. I think most of those guys would have given us a better movie than what we got from Bloom. He's just not his wheel. You know, he plays detachment and, you know, arrogance well. Like, he wasn't bad in Troy because he was playing like a little arrogant dickhead. Right, that makes sense. <laughs> and I, to be clear, I'm talking about the actor, not the person. I don't know that he's an arrogant dickhead. Right. It wouldn't surprise me, but it wouldn't surprise <laughs> me that just, he's not. <laughs> he's just really good at act. He's probably the nicest guy, but he <laughs> excels at coming across as a dickhead. That's all we're saying. Didn't he get in a fist fight with Justin Bieber at like a restaurant in LA oh, really? or something once? Yeah. That's they weird. Were, they had a shared paramour. Okay. I don't know all the details. Maybe I'll put a news link to it in the show notes if I can find one. Oh, yeah. Well, people are dying to read about that, I'm sure. Are you being sarcastic right now? I can't tell. <laughs> I'm being darkly comic because I'm certainly, there's millions of people are dying to read about every fist fight that Orlando Bloom and Justin Bieber get into. But it's Yeah, that seems like it would be a big news story. So there was also some casting mishaps with the Claire character. So Crow did want Kirsten Dunst to play Claire, but she was already signed on to be the lead in The Village. Oh, yeah. I loved her in the village. She was not in the village. (laughs) That's a twist. That was the twist of the village. He just gave it away. Evan Rachel Wood was considered, but was ruled out for being too young at the time, which makes sense. 2004, Evan Rachel Wood must have been still a teenager. Hold on. Clickety-clack time. Evan Rachel Wood. She would have been, no, she was born in 87. Oh, yeah. She would have been 18. Yeah, that would have added, added yet another disturbing wrinkle to that already weird character. Yeah. Dunst dropped out of the village. And then Bryce Dallas Howard jumped in and started her career based on that movie because she gave a very good performance and everyone liked her in it. Not everyone liked the movie, but I think Bryce Dallas Howard is pretty roundly applauded for her performance in The Village. Um, And then Judy Greer was in both movies. So who fuck knows what the schedule was like? (laughs) She's like, why are you guys having all this trouble? I'm just in the movies. Why don't you just do the movies? She's a pro like that. Yeah. Judy Greer, man. She pops up in everything. She's never the star. I'd like to see her try to star in something. I think she'd be good in it. She's delightful. Do you like her glasses on, hair up, or glasses (laughs) off? Glasses on, hair up. Okay. Can we do lights off? Uh, one of the great comedies of Arrested Development was trying to convince us that Judy Greer was like hideous. <laughs> yeah. She had, all she did was, was like cross her eyes, right? That was it. And she had like frizzy hair and a bad wardrobe, <laughs> but she's still obviously a very attractive woman. So the movie opened in third place. We mentioned in a very, it's the word I'm looking for. It's like extra disgraceful that it lost to this movie because there was nothing else good coming out that weekend. It lost to the remake of The Fog. Did you know mm-hmm. they remade The Fog? No. I guess not. <laughs> yeah. They remade <laughs> Sounds the fog good. With- Can we go back and watch that now instead of this episode that we just did? Oh, you don't think we're going to cover the remake of The Fog? Because okay. we're going to cover it. It's coming. Let me just double check that we... Ah, oh, fuck. It made too much money. Damn it. Fog it. But I remember Maggie Grace was in it because she was on Lost. So I was following her career because I was a big Losty. Okay. I was like, oh, cool. She's in a movie. And I was like, this movie's terrible. I'm not a huge fan of the original either. So it wasn't like I had a big investment in it. But yeah, so Lost to the Fog and a Wallace and Gromit movie. The Tony Scott and Keira Knightley disaster domino also came out that month. Stay tuned for that. Or came out that week. 
That'll be a fun episode. That movie's weird. Okay. It dropped 47%, which is not a terrible drop week to week from your opening week. Made 5.6 million in second week. Doom debuted that week. Another future episode. We're just, 2005 was rough going around this time. Yeah, Doom based on the video game, not Doom based on the Frank Herbert novel. Doom, D-O-O-M. Yes. <laughs> and then the next week, Saw 2, The Legend of Zorro, Prime, and The Weatherman, another future episode. I love The Weatherman. It's a good movie. Debuted and pushed Elizabeth Town all the way to 11th place with $2.3 million. And the rest is history. Man, just looking at this list, hearing you run down this set of movies that opened around this movie and squashed it. There's nothing in that list. This is like a nothing no. set of movies. <laughs> it's like just totally bottom of the barrel movies. Right? Is there anything? I mean, no, it's absolute garbage. The um, The Legend of Zorro wasn't terrible, I don't think. Okay. But it wasn't, you know, like a blockbuster at the time. All right. So let's see what Orlando Bloom got up to after this. He hasn't done a ton of big ticket items. He was in the third Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Oh, no, the second in 2006. So he's still doing those. He did Dead Man's Chest 2006, At World's End 2007. He was in Love and Other Disasters, but I think it was a small part because his character is named Hollywood Palo. That doesn't sound like a main character name. Yeah, I don't know what movie that would be the main character in, but... He was in The Three Musketeers. I remember him in that movie. He wasn't terrible in that. And then The Hobbit movies, obviously. Digging for Fire wasn't bad, but that's not his movie. That's Jake Johnson's movie. He's a supporting role in a Jake Johnson movie, if you want to know where he's at. He was really funny in Tour de Pharmacy. Did you see that? The Lonely Island movie about doping and cycling? No, I never got around to that. I need to put that on the list. It's 40 minutes long. It's definitely worth it. It's really funny. He is playing a character called Juju Pepe in that, which is very funny. Wow. He was just in a movie in 2021 called Needle in a Time Stack. That sounds terrible. Oh, boy. And Red Right Hand is filming where he plays Cash. So he hasn't had the most illustrious career. You know, his his big franchises. He came back to do all the Hobbit films, like we mentioned. He's settled. I, I bet he gets fat residuals from his Pirates of the Caribbean and Lord of the Rings movies. Yeah, he was in two of the biggest franchises ever. You can retire after that and just tell everyone else to go fuck themselves. Yeah, and I hope he finds his way into having an interesting late period career. I think that would be a nice comeback story, but it just hasn't really happened yet. Like I said, he's got some interesting roles throughout the years. Crow, in my opinion, never made another good movie after this. He made We Bought a Zoo, and then he made Aloha, and then he made the show Roadies, and I'm throwing that in there because two movies is not enough for me to make a grand proclamation that he never made another good movie. But he directed some music documentaries, uh, two of them about Pearl Jam, I believe. Oh, no. One about Pearl Jam, one about Elton John, and then another about David Crosby in 2019. But Aloha is an unmitigated disaster, and We Bought a Zoo is just a very strange movie. All I know it is is a punchline, but I might have to check it out at some point just to say that I saw it and see what's going on. Why'd they buy a zoo? It made too much money. I Yeah, I look it up like every month because I'm like, there's no way We Bought a Zoo made money, right? But it did. Yeah, I guess it it had Matt Damon and Scarlett Johansson at the height of their movie star power, so I'm not surprised it, it turned a little profit. But it's just such a strange title of a movie and premise for a movie. It's like they bought a zoo and that's what the movie's about. But that one's an adaptation, isn't it? He started adapting stuff with Vanilla Sky. And right. Movies, but I think we, we Bought a Zoo is like based on someone's biography that some somebody that bought a zoo, I presume. You'd have to think so. It does seem like a, a split because several of his films are extremely autobiographical. And then all of a sudden he's like adapting other people's stuff. It's an interesting career path. Yeah. The Vanilla Sky especially felt very not Cameron Crowish. Way out there. You know, for it, what he had done. It's dark and weird and, and trippy where all his movies were so like homey. And, and yeah, they're about <laughs> Aunt Dora cooking stuff up in the kitchen and the kids are screaming. Paula Dean herself 
Did you catch that? That was Paula Dean. I know. She's actually, unfortunately, one of the bright spots in this movie. She's she's one of the better characters. She actually delivers her comedy and it works. And it's, as much as she might be a very questionable human being, we have to wonder what... I, I didn't explore her controversies and her accusations I don't think of she's great. racism. But. but that makes sense that she would be good at pretending to be another person because she's been pretending to be this like kind of homey, oh. friendly, comforting presence on your TV for all these years when really she was not all that nice. Oh, she has that natural acting talent that Orlando Bloom mm-hmm. so sorely lacks. And I believe it was Roger Ebert that came up with the Claire is actually an angel theory that Cameron Crowe later co-opted to be like, yeah, that's what I meant. That's what I was oh. doing. Yeah, I was going for that. You, you guys caught it. Good. <laughs> it's, a good it's a good trick if you can convince people. Even all along. Right. He didn't convince me. He could be telling the truth, but I'm not buying it. So that's Elizabethtown. That's all I got. You got anything else you wanted to add, Ian? I have a note here. I'm not so sure Orlando Bloom is actually a good actor. That's what I wrote down. No, all I could do is spend more time harping on him. It really was disappointing because I hate to be that guy that just goes, oh, this guy sucks. He's so dumb and and he's only successful because he's good looking. But a lot of these things seem to be true about this gentleman, as as sorry as I am to say them publicly. And for us, it's like a missed opportunity. This film could have been, it couldn't have been great because the script is really badly flawed in a lot of ways, but it could have been so much more palatable. It's just a guy, just like, I forgot, was it on blank check that somebody threw out Paul Rudd as like, put Rudd in this thing and like, at least we could like the main oh, character yeah. and believe him. Yeah. Paul Rudd would be interesting in this. That was, the, I believe, Griffin Newman of blank check made that suggestion. Yeah. So many people. It's so easy. You almost think of anybody, you know, put Griffin Newman in this movie, it would have been better. It's a little outside his wheelhouse from what I've seen of <laughs> his acting, but I, I would have watched it. Oh, I was right. Orlando Bloom in 2014 punched Justin Bieber because of Miranda Kerr oh. in Ibiza. <laughs> Perfect. In Ibiza. Oh, man. that is. <laughs> Where else would it have happened? What a story. <laughs> Did like a TMZ AI chatbot write that story? I'm reading it right off TMZ's <laughs> website. So, yeah. The, oh, I guess Orlando was hanging out with Selena Gomez. That oh, was what? Justin's ex-girl. No, this gets messy. Oh, <laughs> but I'll drop the link in the show notes if anybody wants to read it. Thank you. i making a, things up to slander anyone. That's a public <laughs> service that you are providing. All right. So that, that wraps up Elizabeth Town. We're going to be doing a very cool episode next week. We're back on a weekly schedule for now. And we're going to be doing Solo for Star Wars Day. May, May 4th. Wait, you're going to be doing the episode solo? I thought I was yeah. part of this. Fuck you, Ian. I'm going solo. <laughs> I'm still going to need you to edit it, though, and do all the songs and oh, stuff. Oh, man. I can't do it just shit. the fun part. <laughs> No, we're doing Solo, a Star Wars story. The only Star Wars movie, as far as I know, that ever lost money. What a or treat. Or May the 4th be with you. Yeah. yeah I actually that's... like, I, I don't want to spoil anything. I remember liking this movie. I saw it in the theater. I, I remember night. not hating it. So I'm very interested to see how it looks on a second visit. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be able to poke holes in it. Anything, if you examine it closely enough, you can find issue. But my remembering of this movie, just offhand, is good, but inessential. Okay. Like Nobody needed it, but it was fine. It was fun. It was an adventure and it was cool. But when you mix that with the Star Wars franchise, it does raise questions like people buy a lot of really inessential Star Wars shit. That's the whole point of being a Star Wars fan is spending money on stuff you didn't need. So it raises the question, why didn't it at least make some money? We're going to have to dig into that. True. We will have to dig into that. And I have some theories. So we will be back next week. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. Reminder, you can do that on the Spotify now. You can give us ratings. Yeah, try it out. It's real neat. You can find us on Twitter at BlastZonePod. Shoot us an email, BlastZonePod at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, feedback, compliments, questions, we might do another mailbag question at some point in the near future. So let us know anything you want to know. And we'll see you next time in the Blast Zone. See you next time in the Blast Zone. The Blast Show. Wait, wait.